Good morning. My name is Eric Freeman, and uh, I kind of go way back with uh, this church here. Do you mind dimming the lights just a little bit? Um, thank you. Um, yeah, go way back with this church. Uh, this is a really special place to us. Um, in fact, 12 years ago, to the day, uh, my wife Julie and I were married in this very room. Um, so... Um, back then, this room, for, for those of you who remember, was painted mauve. It was really uh, pretty. Um, they, they repainted the place like a few months after our wedding, which, man, we, 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 it might have been worth it to wait just a few months for the pictures. But um, yeah, this place is really special to us. There was a stint uh, of about three years where I served here as a youth director, as a church secretary, um, as a pastoral intern and then went off to seminary and was gone for about seven or eight years. And then suddenly I pop up again, and uh, Matt and, uh, and I, and, and if you remember Justin Sluter, who did a church planting residency here as well, um, we all kind of came up with a plan with, to, to plant a church down in Cadillac. And uh, so Justin and I spent a year here back in uh, 2011, or not 2011, 2021, um, uh, working with you guys and preparing and praying for the future of that church plant. And then just over a year ago, we launched that church. Uh, so we just celebrated our first birthday as a church. And just before we head into the sermon, I just want to give you a brief update. I don't have time to go into all the details, but I want to have follow-up conversations with you. So please stop me before you leave or send me an email or find my phone number somewhere. I'll try to get it to you um, and, and ask for more stories because I've got too many to share. Um, but maybe just three ways of putting this, uh, that we had a lot of prayers and hopes for what our church would be, and God has blown every single one of them out of the water. Um, he is, he, I said this when we were about to leave, and it was one of those preaching points that sounds really good when you preach it, but you haven't actually seen it in action yet, and I said that God wants this church plant to flourish more than we want this church plant to flourish, and that's been true. He has done more work than I or Justin were capable of. He has transformed lives that we don't have the power to transform. We've seen people in the last year who had virtually no interaction with the gospel or church become saved and baptized by, uh, within, uh, honestly, within one month, we had a guy like that um, have no understanding of the gospel, and by the end of the month, he, he's a child of God and baptized now. Um, we had people who are attending our church now who everybody else in the world would have given up on, that there's no chance for them to ever set foot in the church again because of the baggage and brokenness that they were carrying with them. And yet God approached them in his gentleness and in his mercy to, to allow them to, to come into his presence again, not just because it's our church or anything that we're doing, but to see him and re mend that relationship again and receive the healing that they needed. We've seen so many stories, one after another after another. And just, if I could share one specific one while maybe cutting out some details just to, to, to not get too specific about who this person is, but a, a few months ago, we had somebody come into our church with as much church baggage as you could imagine. It's a really tough story, a really, really hard story. Just a surprise that they were even giving church another try. And... Um, after a couple of weeks, they, they came up to me after a sermon and they said, um, hey, Eric, I just want to share with you a story. 
And I don't know what you think about the Spirit speaking to people. And she gave me all the necessary caveats to say, like, I'm not crazy. You know, I'm not, like, seeing God all the time or speaking to him all the time. But I felt something unique today. And that was that during the service, during worship, I felt as if the Spirit of Christ sat down next to me in the chair, leaned over, and whispered, I like it here. You know, if we ever get a taste of, uh, a foretaste of well done and good and faithful servant before the resurrection, that, that kind of felt like it. Um, it's not because of, again, anything that we're doing. It's because God wants to reach people. He wants to seek and save the lost. And he's doing that in Cadillac. There's a lot of more stories I could share with you. So I'd love to talk with you more if, if that's something you'd be interested in doing. But thank you for your prayers. Thank you for your support. Uh, God is blessing that. So thank you. Well, if you have your Bible, please open up to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. I took a look at the Pew Bibles before I got up here, and I think it's on page 8, 836. 836. Mark chapter 1. So the Refuge Church, my church down in Cadillac and and Sojourn, we're actually going through the exact same sermon series right now, uh, preaching on Advent through the perspective of the four Gospels. And so Matt is actually down at my church in Cadillac right now, preaching last week's sermon to them, and I'm preaching my last week's sermon to you guys now on the Gospel of Mark. Um, And what's interesting about the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is that they're all telling the same story, just through a different perspective. I kind of think of it like a kaleidoscope. Did any of you have that as kids, right? Kind of like a small telescope. You shine it up to a light, and then you twist the end of it, and there's all these colored mirrors and lenses, and every time you twist it, you get just a little different picture, don't you? And that's kind of what it's like reading the beginning of the four Gospels. They're all looking at the same source of light. They're all telling the same story about Jesus and his arrival, but you're just seeing it a little differently each time. And, and that's kind of what you, you get with, with this experience, with the story of Advent, Jesus' arrival. There's one source of light, one true story about who Jesus is, but that story can be framed just a little differently. And so last week, Matt led you through uh, what it looks like to wait for the arrival of a king, and this week we're going to look at what it looks like to wait for the arrival of the Son of God. And so our verse is Mark 1, 1 through 3. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And as it is written in, the Isaiah, in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make his path straight. This is the word of the Lord. And it's absolutely true. And it's given to us in love. So who are we waiting for? Matthew, as you learned last week, he runs us through like thousands of years of history and genealogies to answer that question. John, he kind of gets philosophical, starts speaking in some poetry. Luke spends two whole chapters just on the birth story and nothing else. But Mark, he doesn't waste any time here, does he? He gets straight to the point. He just says, this is Jesus Christ. Here he is. Here's the Christ. Here's the Son of God. And then we enter the story into a fully grown adult Jesus. No birth story at all. And these titles, though, that Mark highlights, Christ and the Son of God, these would have been titles that would have been really familiar 
to Mark's readers. They would have had an understanding of these things. There have been many people who've come before Jesus who had been called Christ's or sons of God. They were special titles, to be sure, reserved for spectacular people, but it wasn't a new concept. It wasn't anything new, and Mark's audience would have had some preconceived ideas of what a Christ or son of God would be like. And so it's not new, but it would excite them. But they would have been expecting something that, already, that they've already seen. They wouldn't have known exactly what Mark means when he uses these titles. And so the first title, to be a Christ, it just simply means to be an anointed one. In the Old Testament, there were three roles in society for Israel, three people who got anointed by God. That were the pro- those were the prophets and the priests and the kings. These were the leaders of society. They, they were the leaders of the kingdom, and, and they, re- uh, they brought spiritual revival. And, and there, were, there was even a developed belief over time where Israel looked forward to a day when a new anointed one, a better anointed one, would another Christ, like the other ones, would, would come again and bring spiritual revival and leadership once more. And the title Son of God, it's, it's a lot like that too. God sometimes described his people, Israel, as his son, as his children. And he also described the way that he related to Israel's kings in a father-son relationship, sometimes calling them the Son of God. And this idea was that through them, the, through the sons of God, the, the king, God would establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And over time, as we read the prophets more and more, uh, we get this vision God gives them this vision uh, that one day there's going to be a greater king, a greater son of God to come, a special servant of the Lord, as Isaiah says, a son of God who would fulfill all of their ideals of what their king should be like. And so the point is this, Israel had a framework for understanding these two titles, just not in the way that Mark was using them this time. And they envisioned that God would call for them another Man, another human being to fulfill all of these prophecies that they look forward to. Someone like them, just a little better than them. But even with all the great leaders that Israel had, all the saviors that they had throughout their history, if you notice, not one of their accomplishments ever lasted very long, did it? The greater problem was always there, the curse of sin is never resolved. Now that's not news to us, is it? I mean, we're thousands of years removed from the stories in this Bible, but we still live on the same planet, we still live with the same people, we still have the same problems, and and the more that we search for a lasting hope in this world around us, actually the more that we're confronted with just how hopeless and lost this world really is, right? How utterly broken it is, And, and for many of us, the way our culture celebrates this season, this Christmas time, it, it, with the ideals, with the idealized way that we should be celebrating, with the way our families should look, all of that, all of that niceness and perfection, it, it actually makes us realize just how far, how far short our real lives fall behind, below that standard. And we discover in that process of searching for hope that this world isn't what it should be that we're not what we should be. And there comes a longing for a relationship, for the, rela- for the separated relationship that we have with God, this broken relationship that we have with God. There stirs a longing in our hearts to fix that. 
And yet at the same time, we admit that we can't because we've tried and failed too many times to count. Now each week at Sojourn and and also at the Refuge Church down in Cadillac, my church, we actually read the same invitation uh, to worship. And I love this invitation because it invites us to come as we are, to not leave our mess in the parking lot, but actually that God invites us in our whole selves, the good side and especially the bad side, the flaws and the failures, to come in so that we can receive the healing and forgiveness that we need. And there's this one line in that invitation that really stands out to me on a morning like this, that one confession that we read earlier today, that sometimes we feel worthless and we wonder if God even cares. Maybe if you're taking notes, since we don't have a a projector today, you can write that down, that sometimes we feel worthless and wonder if God even cares. And I want you to think about, when was the last time you felt like that? What was the situation? When was the last time that you wondered if God even saw you, if he was even listening? That though you might be able to look around and say, okay, God exists, he's living and active in the world, but he's not near. He's not close to me, he feels distant, like there's something separating you from him. You know, the Israelites living between the Old Testament and the New Testament, they know what that felt like. They, they, knows what, they know what it feels like to be separated from God. And we have to remember, like, when we open the New Testament, it did not just fall out of thin air. There's a whole context and a history behind this. The people living this time, they're, they're just like you and me, with, with real emotions, with real fears, with real doubts, with a relationship with God that they were trying to make sense of. Being separated from God, it's actually most of the story of the Old Testament, their scriptures, it's, it's kind of one of the main themes. Adam and Eve, they were escorted out of the presence of God, out of the garden. They once enjoyed a face-to-face relationship with him. Imagine that, they enjoyed, they saw him. They walked in the garden with their maker, but the curse of sin made it so that they could no longer be in his presence. There were times where God's plan didn't make any sense. Times when it seemed like he didn't care. Sometimes they were oppressed, sent into slavery or exile. Other times, they chose to be separated. They chose not to engage in a relationship with God, chose a life without him. But I think perhaps the most visually telling example of their separation from God was, believe it or not, the the temple. Now, I I had a whole um, temple diagram to show you today. So um, you're just going to have to use your imagination this morning. Maybe bring out a, a sketchbook. Kids, I know you already, ha- already have your sketchbook out. Anyways, um, and for those of you who spend sermons just flipping at the maps and diagrams in your Bible, good news, go there. Um, so try to find a diagram in your Bible if you have one. And if not, I just want you to imagine this. The temple was more than just one building. There was an entire courtyard. And the first part of that courtyard was this low outer wall with a few entry points that you could walk into, kind of like a fence. And that wall was a dividing wall between the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people, and the Jewish people. Only a Jew was allowed to pass through. Gentiles had to stay out in the city. Dividing wall number one. Then there were gates and extra buildings that you would have to pass through. And one of those gates was a gate that actually separated the priests from the common people. And this particular gate was meant for uh, only men to present their sacrifices and offerings to the priests. 
They were allowed to watch from the gate entryway, but they weren't allowed to enter in. Only the priests were. And if you were a woman, you were allowed to be in the courtyard, but you actually had to watch from a separate gate further away at an angle. Another dividing line. Now, in the inner part where the altar was, that's where the priests were. And that's where they would perform the worship and do their sacrifices. But they weren't in the temple building yet. The temple building was still back there. And only some priests were allowed to go into the temple. Not all. But even then, you were not in the presence of God. One of the things that we have to remember about the temple is that the temple was God's temporary solution for a holy God to live among an unholy people. Where he could be among his people, you know, geographically, but not so near that his holiness would kill them. And so he had to put his spirit in the innermost room of the temple, but he couldn't come into presence with his people. Not while they still had sin. And so only one person, only one was allowed to enter that innermost room of the temple. And that was the high priest. And only once a year on the day of atonement. And even then, he would have to go through all sorts of purification rites to make it happen. So in one sense, the temple is a symbol of God's presence. God living among his people. God's spirit down here on earth among us. And yet, Does he feel near? Does it feel like the way that we were made to be? Like what Adam and Eve enjoyed for a period of time? Seeing our maker face to face? No. God is near, but he doesn't feel near, does he? Hmm. You know, have you ever felt like that? That God is present, but he's not that close? I take a small comfort in knowing that we're not the first way to feel that. We're not the first ones to feel that. And the separation, it only got worse from there. That that temple was eventually destroyed. And after a thousand years of God speaking to his people, sending one prophet, one messenger, after another, after another, communicating his will for the people, he went silent. And not just for a short amount of time, for 400 years. Not a word from God for 400 years. Hundred years. You know, I've always thought that publishers of the Bible, they need to put 400 blank pages between the Old Testament and the New Testament just to drive that home, that there is a separation there. Imagine the longing that would be created in your spirit for his voice again. You know, maybe a Christmas song can, can kind of help us figure out what to do with this. Um, around this time, we start listening to, well, for some of you, you've been listening since July, and I'm not even going to start with you, but for most of us sane people, we start listening to some music that we haven't listened to in a long time, and, and some of those songs are really old, some really classical hymns that have been around for decades or even centuries, and, and one of my favorite is the hymn, O Holy Night. The melody itself, it's beautiful, especially like when you get Whitney Houston belting those high notes, um, but, but the lyrics too, pay attention to these lyrics. There's this one line that I love, and maybe you want to write this down if you're taking notes. This line, it says, Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. Long lay the world in sin and error pining. The cool thing about these old hymns is that they kind of resurrect some old words that we don't use anymore. And 
and that word pining is one of them. It was used a lot more back in 1855 when that song was written than it is today. And maybe a definition that we could use today for the word pining is this, to yearn intensely, to long persistently, especially for something that feels unattainable. To long intensely for something that feels unattainable. And I think it's just hard to find a better word to describe the purpose of Advent. Um, For centuries, Christians have been celebrating Advent as the four Sundays leading up to Christmas Day, uh, celebrating, preparing ourselves for the the celebration of Jesus' birth. It's a season, though, of purposeful waiting. But as you can imagine, Advent has kind of fallen out of um, favor in our culture today, right? Because lines like, long lay the world in sin and error pining, uh, waiting, sitting with the reality of our flaws and our failures, yearning intensely for something that feels unattainable. That's not stuff we like to do, right? If Advent is inviting us to do that, if that's the practice, it's no wonder why so many of us skip right over and go to Christmas Day. We want it now. We don't want to wait for it. But we need Advent. Because the reminder, the good news in this season is that it's willing to be honest about the feelings that we would rather bury, yet are still true. It fights against our hopelessness. It fights against our apathy. It forces us to sit and to wait and to look at our mess in the eyes and yet pine for something better. In a way, Advent kind of connects us with the people of the Bible. Um, Those who were pining generation after generation to see God's promise of salvation come and yet died long before they even saw it come to its fullness. And like them, we sit in faith with those who've gone before us, waiting in silence, looking and listening for God to come near. Now the truth is, and this isn't an allegory, this isn't a metaphor, this actually happened. God went silent. He stopped talking to his people for 400 years. God went silent, but before he did, he left one last message through his prophets, gave them a vision that the silence wouldn't last forever, that a day was coming when all would be made new. And, and one of those prophecies is quoted in these first few verses of, the chapter, uh, of Mark 1. In Mark 1, verse 2 and 3, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Why would we prepare the way of the Lord? Because he's coming. He will walk that road one day. See, God was silent, but he never stopped working in the midst of that silence. He was on the move again, and he would speak again. And if you paid attention closely to all of those prophets at the end of your Old Testament who are hard to pronounce, if you, if you look carefully and look for hints of what God was speaking about, we start to get a picture of who that Lord would look like, what he would be like, a Christ-like figure, an anointed son of God to come. Isaiah in chapter 61, he puts it this way, that speaking through this anointed one, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and opening the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. 
and the day of the vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. And it's in that context that Mark speaks. That's where he picks up the story. After generations of yearning persistently for something that feels unattainable, Mark says that the gospel, the good news, it's here. Finally, it's here. But the good news that arrived, and I want to be clear on this, the good news that arrived, nobody was expecting it to look like this. Sometimes we forget that. Sometimes we take all of the information that we've learned in Sunday school and church over the years, and we're kind of like a dump truck, and we just back up and pile all that information into these contexts and think, why don't they understand? Well, they, they could have never understood what was coming because the long-awaited one, the good news, the Christ that was coming, the Son of God, was not just another man like them, just a little better, no. The good news that was finally here is that God himself was finally here. Not just another man who would have a mix of success and failures and eventually die. No, this would be the true and better Christ, the true and better Son of God because it is God. God with us. That's the claim that Mark makes in this opening verse. This is God with us. That Jesus is fully human yet also fully God, at the same time, Jesus is the invisible God made visible through his body. He is the once distant God who, who left his throne in heaven to come down to earth to take on flesh and live among us. In this person of Jesus, we would discover that the infinite God was even more infinite than when we imagined. Not just one person, but three, that we see the Father, the Spirit, and now the Son in the flesh. And we look back on all the scriptures written up to this point and suddenly it starts to make sense. We start to see everything that we missed before now. And it was the plan all along. It was God's plan all along to do this and so we have it. The good news is here that the once unapproachable God is now approaching us to bring us the salvation and reconciliation we need. I think we've just grown too familiar with this story. You hear it year after year, and the magnificence, uh, magnificence of this uh, story just wears off. If this is true, historical fact, if this is true, then it changes everything. Everything. And here's what it means. That God is way, way more merciful and way, way more loving than we could have ever hoped. Let me break that down. Why more merciful? If you remember what I said just a moment ago, with all those divisions in the temple courtyard between us and God, well, why? Because we couldn't come into the presence of a perfectly holy God because of our sin. The problem of sin was too great. We couldn't live in his presence anymore. We couldn't relate to him face to face anymore as God intended at creation, but... Somehow, and I don't know all the mechanics of this, we just need to leave some things up to mystery, but somehow in God's mercy, God created a way for the judgment and wrath that is meant for our sin to be dealt with another way so that he could come into our presence. 
in Jesus. He is way more merciful than we ever could have hoped. And God is more loving than we could have hoped too because that's what a plan of salvation like this requires. That God has to love us, long for our reconciliation more than he wants to give us the judgment and wrath we deserve. And though we've turned from him, though we've rebelled each and every step of the way, his deepest desire is to see us return to him. Even if it costs him everything. So our sin once separated us from God. And, it, and there's nothing that we could ever do to fix it. And if that's true, then God is going to have to deal with it himself. That's the only solution. So I want you to see here this morning, when we talk about the beginning of the gospel, as Mark says, when we talk about this word, the gospel, it cannot just be a list of beliefs or propositional truths on a paper that we say, yeah, I'll sign off on that. No. The gospel is God himself. The good news is that God has come to be with us in the person of Jesus. That is what we really believe. That will change your heart. That will change everything. As we're going to see over the next few weeks, uh, each gospel writer tells this same exact story, but they just tell it very differently. And all of them tell about the story of Jesus' birth, or at least strongly allude to it, as John does, but not Mark, right? Just look at that. He just skips right past it. So why? Because when we think about Christmas time, isn't it all about the birth story? At least that's kind of how it's marketed to us, isn't it? So why, why does Mark just skip past the birth story? It's because he is less concerned about letting us know how Jesus came and more concerned about telling us why. By skipping over the birth story and just kind of smushing the timeline of Jesus' life all together, he's getting straight to the point. And what happens is, is that even though the stories that Mark's about to tell in the following verses and chapters, they're not different than the other ones that the other gospel writers told, by smushing the timeline together and by these stories coming next, after that claim that here's the Christ, the Son of God, it changes the way that we read those next stories, doesn't it? Now, now it seems like there's a new purpose that Mark is trying to get across. So he starts out with this truth claim. God is here. Well, what scenes do we see next? Well, just in the next verses, we see the heavens open up and the voice of God the Father breaking the silence of heaven and speaking down and saying to Jesus, you're my beloved son. In the presence of all the people, they heard this. And then, after that, we see Jesus go toe-to-toe with Satan, enduring 40 days of temptation in the wilderness, temptation that Adam and Eve couldn't overcome, and temptation that you and I couldn't overcome. So somehow, this Jesus, he's more powerful than we. He's more righteous than we are. And then after that, we see Jesus casting out demons, proving that he has authority over the spiritual. After that, in chapter two, we see Jesus healing a paralytic, proving that he has authority over the body. After that, we see in chapter three, Jesus confronting the most educated religious leaders of that day and showing that he knows the scriptures better than them, as if maybe he wrote them himself proving that he has authority over, this, over scriptures and religion. In chapter four, we see Jesus calm a raging sea, storm in the Sea of Galilee by simply just saying, calm down, just calm down. 
proving that he has authority over all creation. You see, story after story, chapter after chapter, what's the conclusion that we're led to believe? Who else has the power and authority to do these things? Only God. Only God himself. Now that's remarkable. It is a remarkable truth to come to the conclusion that God is with us. But Mark's not done yet. He still has something greater to say and that it's not just that the good news is that God is with us. That's just the beginning of the, God, of the gospel, as he says. The end of it is that this God who came to be with us also came to die for us. So we flip page after page, chapter after chapter, all the way to Mark 15 at the end of the book, and it's here where the story just takes a plot twist unlike any other, an even more stunning realization than the first, that God not only came to be with us, but he came to die for us. Mark 15, verse 37. Please listen to these words. Jesus uttered. He's on the the cross. Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And in that moment, the curtain of the temple that once divided the spirit of God from you and me, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom. And when the centurion standing at the foot of the cross who stood facing him saw that in this way Jesus breathed his last, that centurion said, and see if this sounds familiar, truly this was the Son of God. That centurion saw and believed what Mark wants you and I to see and believe, that Jesus is the Son of God, the Savior that we've been waiting for, the only one who's qualified, capable, and loving enough to end the sin that separates us from God the Father. So much of the way that we celebrate this season is focused on the birth story. It's everywhere. And with good reason, okay? I'm not trying to like, uh, I'm, not, I'm not trying to compare or contrast these two to push that to the corner. It's extremely important. And the importance of that is gonna get more significant as we look at the next two gospels as Pastor Matt will lead, us, lead you guys through. But one of the dangers of only focusing on the birth story is that we can actually lose sight of the whole purpose of Christmas Day. If we never move past the birth story, then we'll never know why he really came. The commentator, uh, James R. Edwards, he puts it this way, and maybe you want to write this first part down. Only at the cross can Jesus be rightly understood. Only at the cross, can Jesus be rightly or fully understood and known. Not simply as a great moral teacher or as the most noble person who ever lived, nor only as a miracle worker or as an answer to this or that pressing question of the world. No, at the cross, Jesus is revealed as the suffering son of God whose death revealed the victory and triumph of God. The point of Christmas Day, the reason why we sit and wait in Advent is because Jesus came to die for you and for me to pay the price of our sin. Jesus came to die and only through his death are we restored to God. 
No more curse of sin. No more dividing walls. No more gates. No more silence. The separation has been bridged by Jesus. And so his birth was necessary to accomplish that. But it wasn't enough by itself. He had to die. And his love for you and me is so great, as it says in Hebrews 13, that it was actually his joy, his joy to endure the the death of the cross for you and me. On Advent, we look forward to celebrating this truth on Christmas Day. That Christ has come. Christ has died. Christ is risen. And Christ will come again. Friends, listen to me. Though the curse of sin has been defeated, there is still a very real sense in which we are waiting now, okay? We are still separated from God. Not that the, now to be clear, the problem of the curse of sin has been defeated, right? We now can enjoy a reconciliation between us and God. We have the assurance of his spirit living in us. But not to its fullness yet, because we were made to live face to face with our maker in his presence and we're not quite there yet. To see Jesus, the resurrected Jesus in the flesh, in the new heaven and new earth, that is something that we're still waiting for. And and so the theologians, they they call this sometimes the, the already not yet. That Jesus has already come, but the fullness of that plan has not yet come. And so what does Advent teach us to do now? to wait. Just as generations and generations of faithful believers waited for before us, persistently pining, yearning earnestly for the day when Jesus will come again, though sometimes that day feels unattainable, if we're being honest. Pining for a day when he'll come again, a day when we will see him face to face. And in that day, it will be without a hint of guilt or shame. You will not turn your eyes in guilt or shame from him because it has been done away with. You will enjoy a new eternity with him, made perfect and righteous fully in his image as you were meant to be. You will enjoy that for, new, for eternity in the new heaven and earth, a resurrected reality when all forms of sin and brokenness, they will be dead and gone Forever. So if you're sitting here and you're feeling like this holiday season feels incomplete, I just want to affirm you. You're seeing the world as you should. There should be a sense of incompleteness that you feel. You are acknowledging something that is true. So take heart. Take heart because you're seeing the world rightly and let those longings that you have, don't push them down, Don't suppress them. Don't get apathetic. Feel it. And let those longings point you to a better and more sure hope than anything else that could possibly be marketed to you or sold to you in this season. Don't rush past your need. Don't rush past your need for the good news that's found in this Advent season. Sit, wait, watch, listen, pine. For him to come again, knowing that your hope is in a God who keeps his promises. He's already done it once. He can and he will do it again.
Let's pray. Lord Jesus, there is nothing else in our heart to say, but please come, and come soon. The pain of this sinful and broken world is too much to bear, and we need you, our Christ, our Son of God, our Savior, to make it all new, and to make us new. So Lord, teach us to wait. Soften our hearts to feel again, to long for something better knowing that we have a sure hope in you, that you can and you will. In your name we pray, amen. One of the joys of, of worshiping as we do here at Sojourn and also at Refuge is that we actually get to receive a gift from God every single week and this gift of communion. That every week that we gather, we get a tangible reflection of this good news. The bread, which represents the body that had to be given for us. The, the cup, which represents the blood that had to be spilled for the forgiveness of our sins. Every time we eat and drink of this gift, Jesus reassures us that, yes, if you believe, if this is where your hope is, you are forgiven and you belong to him forever. But there's another way in which this gift actually fits a lot into the Advent season uniquely. Because when Christ left this gift for his disciples, he said, you know what, this is gonna hold you over while I'm gone. This is gonna remind you that, yeah, you're gonna feel separated from me, but I'm still with you. And one day though, man, it's not gonna be a little piece of bread or a little cup. It's gonna be a feast. And you're gonna have that feast next to me at the wedding supper of the Lamb, and it will be the best day of your life. So in just a moment, for those of you who are Christians, who believe this is where your hope is in, I'm gonna invite you to come forward and to receive this gift. And as you do, believe again, hope again. Look, I'm gonna invite you to stand. And if you feel comfortable, able, eat, drink, and believe that there is nothing from my love.